The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Good afternoon and welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Michelle Jawando and I will be your guest host for the next three hours as we talk the latest on 2016 elections and any and everything in between. Really excited to join you again today. The last time I had the occasion to guest host on the show was my birthday. We had a pretty awesome time so I'm hoping that we can repeat that magic. If you want to join in the conversation and I hope you will, give us a call at 888-6-LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. Or you can follow in in the conversation online. You can follow me at Michelle with one L Jawando if you want to follow along in tw- on Twitter. Again, I'm Michelle Jawando. I am at the Center for American Progress working on a host of really interesting issues um, as our vice president of legal progress and have really always been committed to looking at the kind of intersections of politics and policy and the way they affect our our lives. I'm a mom. I'm a a wife to a husband who's running for Congress. So you know I'm going to talk about that and campaign finance and politics and everything in between. But before I go too further, I wanted to bring in our first guest, Erica Hellerstein, who is the investigative reporter at Think Progress, to talk about an issue that's been near and dear to me as a mother of three young girls. Erica, are you with us this afternoon? Hello. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining us today on the Leslie Marshall Show. So, Erica, I wanted to bring you in in this conversation. So many of our listeners are familiar with what's been going on in Flint, Michigan. But you wrote a really interesting article about some of the forgotten victims of the Flint water crisis. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that article? Sure. Um, Yeah, I also thought that this uh, was really interesting to me when I first heard about it. So I went to Flint a few weeks ago to report on the fallout from the uh, water lead contamination crisis. And actually, while I was there, I met some social workers who, you know, were distributing water and helping out with some of the distribution efforts. And one of them ended up calling me actually after I left Flint and leaving me a message and sort of letting me know You know, there's this group of people that have been sort of overlooked in the water distribution um, efforts and just in general in the coverage. Uh, And he he let me know that the, you know, Flint, Hispanic, mainly their Latino community, uh, immigrant community, they when they were canvassing houses and uh, sort of passing out water and surveying people about if they had access to water, clean water, and, and how they were doing and faring during all this, learned that um, many of the people who were predominantly Spanish-speaking actually didn't even have any idea that the water contamination crisis was going on and, and had no idea that the water was contaminated with lead. Um, and actually, one of the volunteers who heads a local uh, organization and helps to coordinate the volunteer efforts told me that more than 90% of the people that they encountered while they were canvassing this uh, Latino neighborhood in Flint 
had no idea about the water. So, um, Erica, one of the one of the things that you you mentioned, and I just wanted to make sure our listeners picked up on this piece is you said 90% of the people that had been canvassing had not heard about the lead contamination in the water? Yeah, well, this was just on one day. They did some canvassing in the Latino neighborhood in Flint, um, the east side of Flint, and they spoke to uh, families and and people who were living there, um, many of whom were Spanish-speaking or some only spoke Spanish. Um, and, yeah, that was her estimate. And I actually talked to another canvasser who went around that neighborhood, too, who, who gave me the same estimate, uh, more than 90%. Uh, and they told me a story about, or one of them told me a story about one woman who had, um, she was pregnant and um, several months pregnant, and she had been using the water, cooking, you know, with the water, drinking the water, bathing in the water. And they told her all of this, and she had had, absolutely no idea um you know that this was even going on so it was was something that was really scary for a lot of people obviously to you know just learn about that right in the moment um especially and it's and i think for for a lot of us who've been following this closely it seemed almost hard to believe um because there had been so much media coverage at the time but Yeah, but it definitely was siloed. I mean, I think one of the other things that kind of really concerns me about this story um, is the connection to identification. So I am by trade a voting rights attorney and spend a lot of my time working um, with uh, different members of uh, local communities around the concern we had about voter identification and what that would mean, particularly to um, the seniors, women um, who had kind of different last names once you're married, uh, young people, communities of color, and how disproportionately those laws fall on those demographics, those groups. But what I thought was an interesting angle, even about your story, was about Snyder's, uh, Governor Snyder's original um, requirement that you had to show identification to get water and couldn't understand even the nexus between why you're showing water. I mean, why? you needed to show ID to even receive water. Yeah, Yeah, that's something that I heard about uh, while I was there. People mentioned that as well, and um, that was really surprising to me, and I hadn't even thought about the undocumented immigrant angle of that, of the ID, um, until they mentioned to me, some of these canvassers, that people, you know, didn't want to go to these uh, distribution centers that the state, the water hubs, um, because they were asking for identification, and um, obviously, if they didn't have identification, they didn't have access to water. Um, and, you know, that actually ended, I think, a few weeks ago, but there were so many rumors swirling, uh, you know, about the, the ID and, and that people were kind of still nervous, it sounded like, to go. And some people uh, were claiming, you know, it was impossible for me to you know, absolutely verify this, but that some of the fire stations were still asking people to show identification. So, and, you know, it's a huge uh, percentage of that population uh, was very scared to uh, to even in- interact, even, even after hearing maybe that, um, you know, that there had been changes to the policy um, 
And, you know, one of the other questions that I had, Erica, and I, and I wonder, you know, you, you mentioned this pastor who's been doing great work on the ground, but it seems like in, in, in a lot of ways, the community is really stepping up and we're still seeing failures of kind of government infrastructure to really serve people on the ground. Is that something else you observed? Yeah, I, I definitely think the community response has been pretty tremendous. Um, just from what I observed, obviously, I'm, I'm not still there, and I wasn't there for too long. But I, just for example, um, you know, they've received so much water from people, both in, in the community and outside of the community, outside the state. Uh, when, I, when I met this pastor, I ran into, like I said, these social workers who had driven down hours from, um, you know, other parts of the state who were really concerned and helping lead some of the distribution efforts. So, yeah, I think it seems like there's still, you know, these big gaps. Um, and they're, they're from people I've talked to since concern about um, sort of, this is such a long-term problem. What happens when what the happens next sort of goes away? Uh, right now, there's you know crisis control, and it seems like there you know are, there is a lot of water, and there are these things that people immediately need. But something that's consistently come up from people I've talked to is you know what happens after everybody stops paying attention, right. um, and there's such a need for long-term. Uh, care engagement that. no i think you're you're so right and erica i think and appreciate you for taking the time to go on the ground ladies and gentlemen erica hellerstein with investigative reporter with think progress we'll head to break this is michelle jawando in on the leslie marshall show life liberty and the pursuit of truth the leslie marshall show 8886 leslie Welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Michelle Jawando tuning in as your guest host this lovely afternoon. And I thank so many of our listeners, our faithful listeners, who are always turning in to the Leslie Marshall Show. If you want to join in the conversation, give us a call, 888-6LESLIE, or that's 888-653-7543. Or you can follow us, the conversation on Twitter, at Leslie Marshall or at Michelle Jawando. So I'm really excited to have my next guest who's in the studio um, because I like to breathe, you know, that whole thing that human beings have to do in order to survive. And yesterday, I believe it was, the Supreme Court kind of shocked most of the environmental community with a stay related to the president's um, actions on clean power plants. And basically the impact of what we're talking about, ladies and gentlemen, um, is pretty extensive. And so coming into the studio right now is my colleague, Mr. Benton Strong from Center for American Progress Action Fund. Benton, thank you for coming in. Happy to be here. Good to be up here with you, Michelle. So, okay, Benton, uh, I shared with some of our 
our listeners the whole like I like to breathe thing and I think people think I'm exaggerating but can you tell them like why I'm upset about that uh, you know it's Tuesday I think Tuesday was when it happened that, that was a bad day for people who like to breathe I mean to put it to put it very bluntly you know we were all getting ready to look at returns from the New Hampshire primary I think that's what we thought Tuesday night was going to be about but in it the fashion of the Supreme Court because this is what they do come of these things kind of when they feel like it they announced a stay of the clean power plan pending the litigation that is in front of the D.C. Circuit Court. So to kind of give you how crazy this is, this is unprecedented. From what we can understand, this has never happened, that the Supreme Court has issued a stay on a policy from an administration before even a previous circuit court actually got to look at the merits of that policy. And so we're not talking about a law that's going to go to the Supreme Court in the next couple of months. We're talking about a law that might go to the Supreme Court next year. Mm, mm. And before that happens, it has to go through the D.C. Circuit Court, which previously had declined to issue the same stay. So what, what's going to happen here? That means that this law probably won't be implemented for at least two years uh, until after it goes both through the D.C. Circuit Court and through the Supreme Court. Uh, that's the assumption that is what will happen based on how this has gone so far. Um, and we're talking about, look, a law that's going to make it easier for people to breathe. It limits the amount of asthma attacks by kids because it takes pollution out of the air. But probably beyond the public health thing, the biggest thing that this does is gives America a big step forward into what's going to be the future economy of the 21st century, which is clean energy. And right, we're already right. moving in that direction. Uh, and this policy was going to be a major push in that direction. And now we're going to be on hold for several years. So, you know, for our listeners who may not be available. So in late 2015, the administration um, underneath the EPA administrator, Gina McCarthy, uh, moved forward with what was known as the Clean Power Plan. And what this would do is it had already imposed carbon limits on future power plants, but this was the first time that those same limits were going to be applied to existing power plants, which we know are the single largest source of carbon pollution in the U.S. And, you know, when you talk about impact, 166 million cars off the road, 90,000 fewer asthma attacks among children each year. And the president talked about, like, the urgency to get this done was critical. This is one of the things he talked about a lot when he went to Paris for the um, climate accord, and now we seemed to be taking a step backwards. I mean, you're almost understating what the president, the president in 2013 in the State of the Union said that we have a moral obligation to our children and future generations to address climate change. This would have been, or will be, when it gets done and gets implemented, assuming it gets through these courts, the largest action ever taken by the United States to address climate change. You mentioned you said it exactly right. Power plants represent 40% of the carbon pollution in the United States. We used to be the world's biggest emitters. Now, obviously, China and India are ahead of us. But why does that matter? Because when the president went to Paris and said, we will join with you and we will take major action on climate change, the clean power plan was the central element of that. We said we will hold up our end of the bargain by dramatically slashing the amount of carbon pollution we produce, and that's going to be because we're going to clean up our power plants. And our coal industry is moving in a direction where it's shifting into even natural gas, but also wind, solar, other mm-hmm. forms of clean energy. So that was going to be our ticket. Now we have to talk about uh, you know American leadership on this front and whether China and India actually stick with the promises they've made because they now have the evidence to say, well, if the United States isn't going to do it, if their Supreme right. Court is going to strike down this action – 
then why should we do it? Now, it is important to note for our listeners, however, that this stay didn't look at the actual That's merits right. of right. the Clean Power Plan, right? This just looked at whether or not you could start enforcement now or a little later. That's, That's exactly That's exactly right. And here's our fear. And here's because this is what was so significant about the Supreme Court's decision. Usually when something like this happens, it goes to the Chief Justice and John Roberts sits there and he decides, should we stay or should we not stay? Obviously, every other time previously, they've said no. Instead, he opened it up to the whole court, hmm. and the court ruled five four against the clean power plant to stay the plan, to stay the action wow. on the plan, and that sort of tracks right along with what we've been seeing from this court about how they will insert themselves into policy conversations that are happening and into politically motivated, obviously politically motivated lawsuits and make decisions that are harmful to Americans. And am I right that the the main people who've been pushing this are predominantly Republican attorney generals from like Republican dominated states? Is oh, that you're, giving right? them, you're giving them too much credit. <laughs> it's the industry that's pushing this, right? Yeah. It's it's oil companies and coal companies and you name it. And, and you look at a lot of these attorneys general that you were just talking about, most of them have a whole lot of campaign contributions from those industry companies that just don't want to actually go through the transition that we have to go through in the next few years. So let me take a quick caller. I think we have Danny on from Charlottesville. Danny. Hi, how are you? You'd love to hear your question. Okay, so I'm uh, really concerned about how it would affect other nations, so international environmental policy, if we do wind up holding our end of the bargain. Oh, if we do wind up holding up our end of the bargain, I mean, it'd be great. I mean, if, if, if it, it's a great question, Danny. I mean, it, we went to Paris and we came up with the with, with the historic agreement uh, back in December, and it basically would start the world on track to limiting carbon pollution at the way that the way that we need to. It doesn't get us all the way there, but it puts us it puts us on a, the first real track toward limiting carbon pollution to the to the level that we need to, and it, and it does it in a way that doesn't just call on China and India and the United States to take the leadership role that we should, but it also puts developing countries who tend to rely on dirty energy sources because they've been the cheapest for a long time. It gives them the opportunity to sort of grow economically in a way that's in a way that's safer and cleaner than it has been in the past. Um, so it would be a great thing. And we've seen the impacts of climate change around the world. I mean, a lot of what's happening in Syria is a result of a civil war that was largely caused by a drought that brought people into major cities. And so the benefits of acting on climate change are obvious here. The problem is what happened on Tuesday puts a hold for some amount of time on getting that done. Ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to Benton Strong. Benton, thank you so much for joining us today on the Leslie Marshall Show. We'll definitely have you back. Stay tuned. We're going to be talking a little bit more about Flint and child development after the break. Benton, Danny, great question. you got to come back, Benton. Absolutely. Let's go outside and get some fresh air, though. All right, let's do that. Well, we can still breathe. (laughs) All right, thanks so much. We'll be back after the break. Leslie Marshall, real people, real life. Real Talk, 888-6-LESLIE. Good afternoon and welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your guest host for this lovely afternoon, Michelle Jawando from the Center for American Progress. Um, It is my pleasure to be with you for the next few hours as we talk the biggest issues of the day, particularly what's facing progressives and liberals all over this country. 
So last hour, uh, we started the conversation talking a little bit about Flint. And I know we had a few people who were trying to call in. And if you're interested, please make sure you give us a call at 866-6-LESLIE, or you can follow us along on Twitter. But we mentioned the effect on kids. And, you know, this is something that hits me really personally. Um, I am the mom. I shared with you um, a few minutes ago. I'm the mom of three young girls. My husband and I have a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and a two-year-old. And so you can imagine my house is crazy all the time. Um, and actually, one of our guests who is in the studio has babysat for me. So I, like, love her. But uh, there's a special place in my heart for all people who watch my kids. Oh, they're great kids. <laughs> they're, they're great kids. Oh, thank you. I'm biased. Um, but what made what hit me from this piece that you wrote um, is talking about kind of the long-term development issues for the children in Flint. And no one is really talking about this the way that I really feel we should be. Um, and so joining me in studio, I have Miriam Adumu, uh, who's a research associate for the Early Childhood Policy Team here at CAP, and Rebecca Ulrich, the policy analyst for the Early Childhood Policy Team. Thank you, ladies. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much. So uh, let's just kind of give listeners a little bit of a background about your piece. And um, Miriam, why don't you kind of give us a background for the piece and Rebecca, maybe talk about why you thought this was so important to specifically focus on the development needs for children. Mm-hmm. So just some background on the piece. It's uh, up on Medium and it's called Don't Throw the Baby Out with the Tap Water uh, title that Rebecca came up with, <laughs> which we think like encompasses uh, a lot of the issues that we're um, concerned with related to Flint. And actually yesterday there was a hearing um, the House Democrats hosted, and they had a number of people speaking from Flint about sort of the issues that they're seeing on the ground. And the mayor of Flint, Karen Weaver, said this really amazing thing, um, just that we are not disposable, um, just in like in reference to Flint and Flint's people and their children. And I think that was sort of what we were trying to get across uh, with this piece, that the children are not disposable. And in refusing to invest in kids, we're treating them that way. Mm. Um, and I think Rebecca can give some some more background on that. Yeah, so what was really striking to Mariam and I as we were you know, reading all of the news about what was going on in Flint was how little uh, was really coming up about what was going to happen to these kids. Um, People were mentioning, you know, there are are, uh, right about 9,000 kids under the age of six that are living in Flint. And while um, the developmental concerns were were kind of mentioned in passing, there was very little conversation at, at that point in time about um, what was going to be done to to help these kids? And the the impact of lead exposure on kids uh, younger than six is particularly significant. Their bodies absorb lead more efficiently than adults do, and so it's more likely to end up in their blood, their bones, their teeth, their vital organs, and ultimately in their brains. Which, as you can imagine, has really significant impacts on their development. And so. Uh, we were really just trying to think about and, and wanted to get this issue across that it's so important for uh, policymakers and um, people in the community to be um, planning for the long-term issues. You know, that point kind of resonates with me so much. You know, I often think about my girls. You know, we read to them every night. And 
And when we talk about the achievement gap, it starts at the age of two. My husband, who I shared with you guys, has spent most of his career running in education, uh, working in education. And one of the things he often talks about is by the time a child starts kindergarten, if you're in certain homes, you've heard over 30 million words, right? So the achievement gap doesn't start once you start in kindergarten. There are all of these other factors before you get there. And when you think about the impact of lead Mm -hmm. on a child's development. You know, if you're listening in, it is 888-6-LESLIE if you want to join in the conversation. Miriam, just follow up on that point. I mean, what does this mean for our children long term? Absolutely. And I think you uh, brought up an important conversation, which is the achievement gap. And uh, there's a study that we highlight in our piece uh, that focused on Detroit that really sought to link lead exposure, early childhood lead exposure, so before the age of six, to achievement scores through elementary and junior high school. And it was a longitudinal study, so they were looking at the same kids um, as they grew up and went to school and took state tests. And what they found was um, even kids with, like, level, le- like blood lead levels that are deemed like acceptable by the CDC, even those kids um, were significantly less likely to score proficient in all of their state tests. And that's reading, that's math, that's mm-hmm. science. So we're talking about like achievement scores through elementary and junior high school. So this is not just something you deal with um, in the weeks and months that follow lead exposure. It really uh, carries on for years. And that drives home, I think, two really, really important points that there, and doctors are saying this and advocates are saying this, that there is like no safe level of lead exposure for children. Um, and the other thing that you brought home is um, that these results held in this study and out of and they were focused on Detroit, another city mm-hmm. with lead issues. Um, those results held even when they were controlling for other risk factors, including poverty. Wow. Um, but what we know is lead exposure usually compounds with a bunch of other things, including poverty, including like racial discrimination, including um, maternal education status. So all of these issues wrapped up together, lead is just one of them. And when you put it in the context of poverty and of other issues, uh, we're talking about pretty significant um, barriers that these kids are going to have to face in the years moving forward. So, but Rebecca, you know, I think a point that it's so important for our listeners, and we've started to see more conversation on this, that this isn't just Flint, right? right. This is we're we're going to see more of this across the country, and I think it's a point that you make in your piece that we don't even actually have the proper testing across the country to do this. I mean, what what have there seems to be kind of gross failures across the board, and just Flint is the worst of them. But talk a little bit about that. Sure, and you know, Flint, as many people have um, have mentioned, is is particularly horrific in that it was kind of a man made crisis, but. Mm-hmm. Um, across the country, there are communities, particularly lower income, predominantly African American communities, where lead exposure is is much higher than it is in others. Um, and this is, we typically associate lead exposure uh, with with um, lead pipes, and then also uh, with paint. And um, what a lot of people don't know is that it can also be found in your soil in your backyard. For instance, on the Washington D.C. Um, energy and the environment page, they actually warn parents that um, it might be a good idea if you have live in an older home to cover up the soil in your backyard so that it doesn't get tra- um, tracked inside your house. Um, and I think that there's just kind of across the board this really um, gross misunderstanding and sort of misconception about the risk and and um, the prevalence of lead in, in places that you might not expect to find it. And uh, because at this point, um, 
it's not required for counties and states to report their lead testing. We don't have good data on where this is a significant problem. And so it's, it makes it really difficult for families to be aware and to, to educate themselves about the risks for their kids. You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. If you want to join in the conversation, it's 888-6LESLIE. This is Michelle Jawando. So, Miriam, in the time we have remaining, what do we do? I mean, like, where do we go from here? Are there wraparound services that we need to be talking about from now? How do we track these children? I mean, this could essentially be an entire generation that will have major risk factors that we've never seen before. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I think that's a really important place to end this conversation about, like, what we can do at this point. Um, and I think from our perspective, investing in young kids is really, really important. And to not just think of that investment as Head Start, as some of the policymakers have been talking about Head Start, they've been talking about pre-K, but what we need is actually the entire continuum of services from birth to age eight and beyond as children are developing. So that includes early intervention services. Um, if kids are experiencing behavioral difficulties or um, speech and development difficulties, like they need to be met with uh, high quality services at at birth, basically, and throughout. And so we're talking about that. We're talking about early Head Start. We're talking about Head Start. We're talking about pre-K. We're talking about a high-quality continuum of services um, that doesn't just seek to put a Band-Aid on the problem. And I think that's uh, something that we're really invested in is that and we all should be invested right. in Right, yeah. and we don't just wait for the crisis to do the right thing. And we were actually we talking to um, some of the people who work at Genesee uh, School District, which yeah. is where Flint is located. And something that they are, are working toward is building universal access. And what they, what they say is that if you build universal access, you'll get the kids who were ex- exposed to lead, but then you'll do the right thing for all for the kids everybody. across and the board. And that's right. And we need to do more for all of our kids all the time. You are listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. I want to thank my guests for coming into the studio today so much more to talk about but we're always running short on time stay tuned join in the conversation and when we come back we'll be talking maryland rights restoration this is the leslie marshall show and i'm your guest host michelle jawando leslie marshall the simple truth in a complicated world 8886 leslie And welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your guest host for this afternoon, Michelle Jawando, here from the Center for American Progress. And thanks so much for all who have been following us on Twitter or um, giving us a call into the studio. If you want to join in the conversation, you can give us a call at 888 6 Leslie or 888-653-7543 or you can follow along on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Michelle Jawando. So, you know, the last few hours or the last hour we had a number of conversations talking a little bit about Flint and a little bit about the clean power plan. And it 
And I think one of the reasons why I wanted to start there is I think we often forget about how important the environment is in our everyday life. I think that's why there's such a disconnect sometimes with the policies that affect us, because in some ways you just kind of wake up, you go to work, you get in your car and you keep on moving. And so you kind of take for granted things like taking a bath. Uh, and taking a shower in the morning or drinking some water. Um, You take for granted the fact that, you know, the air that you breathe is affected by how much pollution is in the environment. And, you know, I think sometimes these are like really esoteric and theoretical concepts, but they're so important in our everyday lives. And um, so I really appreciate those who are able to give us a call in and engage and our our, our, uh, guests that we had in studio. And now I just want to change topics a little bit and bring in my next guest who is Jennifer Bevan Dangle who's the executive director of Common Cause Common Cause Maryland Jennifer Good afternoon. How are you? Hi. How are you? Perfect. So, for our listeners, you you may have heard me mention I am a proud Marylander. Uh, well, I'll say I'm a proud Marylander by marriage because uh, I'm always going to be a New Yorker, and it comes out when I call my mother, but definitely. But <laughs> I am a proud Marylander now, uh, thanks to my husband William Jawando. And we are proud to be raising our family and living in Silver Spring, Maryland. Some of our listeners know that um, he's actually running uh, for Congress in Maryland. And one of the big issues that he's been talking about and a number of people have been talking about is rights restoration in Maryland. And this week, we were really excited that we had an override of the governor's veto. Isn't that right, Jennifer? Absolutely. You have one more reason to be very proud to be a Marylander this week. That's right. Now, can you give our listeners a little bit of context about kind of what happened and how we got to the point where we even had to override a veto? You, like, don't hear about that that often. (laughs) Certainly. And it, it does not happen that often in Maryland. This was a very special bill. Last year, the advocacy community came together behind a reform that will give 40,000 Marylanders the right to vote again. Right now, under the old law, former felons, when they were released from prison, they had to serve their probation and their parole, possibly two, three election cycles, before they got back that right to vote. And we were thrilled when the legislature passed this reform last year and and restored their rights immediately upon release to re-enter the system when they re-enter their neighborhood and have a voice in their community. Unfortunately, the governor vetoed it, and that's where we ended up this year, overriding that veto. Now, you know, a lot of times, and there was a lot of conversation online and in the press, you know, why are we, you know, if you were in studio with me, you would see air quotes, why are we letting criminals vote? And what I tell people is 90% of the people who go to prison are coming back out. And they're not others. They are mothers and our fathers, our brothers and our sisters. They are us. Um, and uh, all of the research and the data shows that once you have people who are reentering back into our communities, you want to do as much as you can to reintegrate. And one of the best ways to do that is our civic duty. Ex-offenders are literally the only people where it's legal to discriminate against. And yet we had all of this kind of hubbub about giving them and granting them their right to vote. And you don't you don't lose your right to vote just because you went to prison. 
did you have to do a lot of explanation, Jennifer, and education about why it's so important to reconnect with this, reconnect with our communities through voting? We did. And I was so surprised because the parole and probation officers came out and said that giving people back the right to vote helps them feel invested. It helps them feel like they're part of their communities. And it brings down recidivism. So this is a tremendous step we could take to really make people's lives better. And the fact that we still have this counter-argument that these are felons, these are criminals, that really surprised me. As you said, they're mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters. We expect them to have a job. We expect them to pay their taxes. But we don't allow them to have a voice in their government? Basic unfair. You know, so um, I spoke a little bit earlier about Will, and he's done some work about kind of once we are back in our communities, how do we re-enfranchise and get people connected? Um, I think, you know, he will often say that once we have people enter back into society, we don't always have the support systems that they need to fully reintegrate. So one of the questions that I have for you is what are some of the things that you're doing? Um, What Common Cause and other activists are doing on the ground to make sure that this population of people know that they now have the ability to register? Because, you know, we have, um, you know, a turnout problem in Maryland and a registration problem across the country. So what are we doing? We have a very short window between now and the primary where Baltimore City has a, a hotly contested city election, and we want to make sure as many people as possible do go get registered and do turn out to vote. So the committee, the coalition is going to be working with the churches, with the community centers, doing everything we can, door-to-door registration if we need to, to make sure we capture as many of these re-enfranchised individuals as we can. And, you know, we have a a tweet from Derwood Sandy. Living in Maryland, I'm all for citizens voting unless they've been convicted of election fraud. Thank you so much, Derwood. And, you know, you're so right. Everyone should have an opportunity to participate in our democracy. You know, what's so funny is there are all these kind of folks on the right who are like, oh, we can't let these people vote and participate in our democracy. They think our democracy is so weak and fragile that you can't take different ideas. You can't take different people's perspectives. So I think it's always an interesting statement on the way people view voting in general. It certainly is. And we always grow concerned when we hear, you know, this population shouldn't be allowed to vote anymore because we can't forget the deep-seated racism that was at the heart of a lot of these reforms that initially took away people's voting rights. And anything we can do to help combat those insidious efforts, it's an important step forward. You're exactly right. I share with people that the reason we have voter registration in the first place is we didn't want freely enfranchised uh, uh, slaves to have the opportunity to vote, and we didn't want women. And they felt like, hey, we got to do what we can to keep people out. So it's important to look at the historical reasons why we have systems in place. So, Jennifer, if people are interested in getting involved and helping out, what can they do? They can find us easily through Facebook, Common Cause Maryland, or through our website, and you can get all our contact information there, md.commoncause.org. And we're happy to help people connect with registration drives or connect with some of the next big policy fights that we have on our hand. We're hoping that this will be the year of huge progress in Maryland on voter rights, and we're only halfway there.
All right. And we had joining us today, Jennifer Bevan Dangle. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us on the Leslie Marshall Show. This is your guest host for the afternoon, Michelle Jawando. Coming up next, a little bit of fun and fashion, as well as voting rights. In studio, we'll have Giovanna Gray Lockhart, who is the Washington editor at Glamour Magazine, and Layla Zanaday from Generation Progress. We'll be back in eight minutes. You're listening to the Leslie Marshall Show. The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Welcome back. For those who are just joining us, this is Michelle Jawando filling in as a guest host on the Leslie Marshall Show. For our folks who want to call in, please give us a call at 888-6LESLIE or 888-653-7543. You can follow online if you want to engage on Twitter. We've had some good Twitter questions today. My Twitter handle is at Michelle Jawando, or you can follow us at the Leslie Marshall Show. So I'm really excited about our next segment um, because today is a debate a debate night. Uh, there's a Democratic debate that's happening this evening. Um, we have nothing but nonstop election coverage everywhere you look. Um, and so I wanted to add a few different perspectives that we don't always hear about when we talk about the 2016 elections. And they are incredibly important to any primary voter, whether you're talking about on the Republican or the Democratic side, and that is women. Um, and often we don't hear about the voice of young women, millennial women, um, or mothers. Um, and, you know, this was an interesting stat, and I don't know if our listeners are familiar with this. For the first time, 2016 will be the first time that there are equal numbers of millennials and boomers who are voting. And that's a really, really big deal. Um, what people don't know is they often think about millennials as just young people, but millennials are parents. Uh, I'm a millennial parent, although it's really weird because I'm at the tail end um, and I like to think that I'm really, really cool, but uh, my five-year-old daughter often tells me I'm not, but you know, it's okay. Um, And so the issues and the concerns that are affecting um, women and families all across this country are incredibly important to uh, this community. And so joining me in studio... Super excited to have Giovanna Gray Lockhart, who is the Washington, D.C. editor of Glamour Magazine. Giovanna, thank you for joining us. Thanks. Happy to be here. And then also in studio, I have Layla Zidane, who is the executive director. Managing director, but thank you for the promotion. (laughs) Hey, anything (laughs) that I can do to help um, of Generation Progress. So thank you both for joining us in studio today. Thank you. So, you know, one thing that has... Everybody talking um, on the left and the right is the fact that Hillary Clinton um, had an event recently and Gloria Steinem and Madeleine Albright, who are both icons in their own right, um, had some comments about young women and engaging in voting and questioning maybe some of their motivations. But I think they opened up an interesting question that 
may speak to the fact that we maybe don't know why young women are motivated to vote. So as opposed to taking some time to focus on what they said, I wanted to bring you and Layla at the beginning of this conversation, because I know Generation Progress has done a lot of focus groups, you've done a lot of work on the ground, and finding out what are the motivations for why young women are voting and what moves them. Um, Why don't you start? Yeah, absolutely. So I think when you talk about young people voting and young women in particular, you know, you can't you can't generalize like Steinem and Albright did and say, you know, this is this is why they're doing it. And frankly, in in a negative way, but really think through kind of what matters to our generation as a whole. And in the polling that Generation Progress has done and actually recently rocked the vote in U.S. Today confirmed it. Um, the number one thing that people care about is the economy, and I think when you can speak to that concern in a very authentic and very real and understanding way, young people and women in particular are going to respond positively to that. And I think um, you know there are lots of policies that fall under that umbrella of the economy that matter specifically to young people, uh, to young women, paid leave, childcare flexible work schedule, um, things that contribute to the stability of a family or the future, you know, the future family that you envision. I think those are really important things that matter to young people um, as they're considering who do they want to vote for and who do they think can lead the country. And um, I think regardless of, of which candidate you are or where you are, when you're speaking directly to those issues that really motivate people and really speak to them in a very personal way, um, that's what's going to energize people and turn them out to vote. And, um, you know, I think at the end of the day, it's it's those are the issues that are going to mobilize people to to really vote for for the candidate that they think is best. And now, Giovanna, I want to bring you into this conversation because you are at the helm of one of the most influential women's magazines, Glamour Mag, and they have been doing tons of work on voting and democracy. They've been featuring really interesting um, kind of stories. Um, They did a great piece a little while ago about the bipartisan nature of the women in the Senate being really effective. But what are you hearing from your readers of the magazine about like what are the most important things for them this election year? Mm-hmm. Well, Michelle, one in eight women in this country read Glamour, right. um, and our readers span uh, 18 to 45. So our reader is just as likely to be a college student as she is to be a mother of two kids and a wife of a service member. Um, so when we were thinking about how we wanted to cover the election. We thought, um, you know, we have a magazine that comes out uh, 12 times a year, mm-hmm. and we have very long lead times, and these tend to <clears throat> involve, uh, you know, more feature-type stories. But we have, obviously, our website, Glamour.com, where we have an opportunity to put content on a daily basis. And so what we did was we um, we started a new site as part of Glamour.com called the51million.com, and there are 51 million uh, young women eligible to vote this year in this election. And this is a, as Layla knows, this is an unprecedented number. I did not know that that was equal to the number of boomers, which is really interesting, mm-hmm. um, although that's probably across both genders. Mm-hmm. But just women alone, there are 51 million women between 18 and 45, and that's a census um, number. So we were branded at the 51million.com, uh, and we have contributed political journalists, we have contributors from both sides of the aisle, and we've been delivering nonpartisan coverage um, since basic we launched last August. And 
one of the things that we um, found out by surveying and, and also, you know, Glamour knows their reader really well. Um, uh, but we found out that actually 43% of them don't identify with a political party. 43%? Yes. And wow, this pretty that's much a huge number. Believe it or not, this number of our, our readers, actually that number 43% mirrors the national numbers as well. Mm. So when you're talking about a glamour reader, you're really talking about your average female voter. Mm-hmm. Um, she reads our magazine. And everything you read in our magazine or on our website or on our social media channels is a reflection of the conversations that they're having in their daily lives. Mm-hmm. Whether it be about fashion or beauty or relationships or career advice, but they're also talking about politics and they're also talking about issues. One thing we also learned that was very interesting, when we do pieces on issues versus profiles of candidates, those have better traffic. The issues. Yes. Like, so when we're talking about, like, jobs To Layla's point, the economy is huge. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to be doing a survey in, um, uh, this uh, March with the Voter Participation Center, which you're probably mm-hmm. familiar with. And um, this will be a nonpartisan survey. You know, we'll be, I will be um, polling, you know, Republicans, Democrats, independents, unaffiliated, um, really focused on, on issues. Mm-hmm. And, and also where the intersection of policy and their lives sort of intersect and what's going to motivate them to turn out to vote. I think one of the issues um, that we've seen and in the apathy of young voters is that they don't see that the what happens in Washington and what happens in, in affecting Congress them. affects them. And I think what Sanders has done very effectively is said, you know, you've got $100,000 in student loan debt, like like my sister, actually. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's like, that's the government's problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so, And you got to do more about it. And you have to do more, yeah. Now, if you are just joining us, this is Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show in studio with Glimmer Magazine, Washington, D.C. editor, Giovanna Gray Lockhart and Leela Zayden of Generation Progress. We will be back on the next segment because there's still so much to talk about with these two amazing dynamic women and when we come back we want to dig into a little further these issues and would love for you to join in the conversation again that's 866-6-LESLIE this is the Leslie Marshall Show and I'm Michelle Jawanda thanks so much Life, Liberty and the Pursuit of Truth The Leslie Marshall Show 888-6-LESLIE Welcome back. You are listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. This is your guest host, Michelle Jawando, filling in for the afternoon. And I am joined in studio with my guest, Giovanna Gray Lockhart, the Washington, D.C. editor of Glamour Magazine, and Layla Zayden from Generation Progress. So, Layla, I want to start with you because um, Giovanna, right before the break, talked a little bit about like the way people think about Washington. Um, and 
I found even just from my personal experience now as like a political wife, um, you know, people have a view of Washington and I think it's connected to like the cynicism Mm -hmm. and the apathy. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, Giovanna made a really good point that people see Washington as something so separate from from reality even. And I think that is because of this pervasive distrust in government and what government represents, which is, you know, when people think of government, they think of the like politicians and people who are, you know, potentially being dishonest or uh, misrepresenting what's happening. Young people do actually support government policies and government infrastructures to help make people's lives better. And I think that's why we've seen in the past uh, um, such a good turnout around these ballot initiatives and ballot measures. When you put issues to the test, young people are going to turn out and vote for them. But I think that um, this kind of contrast between the system and government versus the issues and policies that make people's lives better, those are two separate things in people's minds. And uh, the more that you can be authentic in kind of presenting these solutions and these government solutions that are going to make people's lives better, the more you're going to get young people to turn out for them. Um, And I just wanted to touch on the number that uh, millennial voters and boomers are the biggest or are uh, um, equal right now. In 2020, in the next cycle, actually millennials will be the biggest voting block. And wow. so I wow. think, you know, really making sure that we're paying attention to our generation and building that infrastructure to make sure that we're engaging people in a in a way that's forward looking and long term and building that infrastructure to make sure that, you know, when the time comes, when it's 2020, this is going to be. A, a, a big major issue to be reckoned sure. with. Yeah. So Daniel Harvey has joined us. So we put up a tweet. Um, we put up a question, really. Is it demeaning for women to be judged either on issues or should be women be paying attention to their gender and voting on gender issues only? Like what's more important, issues or gender? And so Patricia just wrote in, you would think character would be more important than gender gender or race. Just just saying, I'm a women voter, and for me, that doesn't work. And Daniel wrote in, absolutely, women are demeaned by such brainless rhetoric. I mean, I believe women are much smarter than that. I mean, Gia, that probably tracks with some of the stuff that you're seeing. Yeah, look, I think that you know, we did a piece right um, right before the Iowa caucuses. Ashley Parker from the New York Times, who freelances for us, did interviewed young women as they were going into their caucus sites. And it was really interesting. The people who said, I'm going to caucus for Clinton. On the one hand, some said, I'm doing it because she's a woman. And I think that we need a woman. It's time for a woman president. And others were saying, no, I like her positions um, and her policies. And it's not because she's a woman. So I, I think that I think that we're experiencing a lot of sexism, Mm -hmm. for sure, Mm -hmm. in this campaign Mm -hmm. um, that has yet to really be um, brought to the surface. That's for sure. Um, We'll have a piece posting tomorrow on the 51million.com written by Crystal Ball about this. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that what they're saying is, what is your position on the issues that I care about? And and that's what's important to me. That's what's going to drive me to to vote for you. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, you know, college debt 
is a big one. Yeah. And that's connected to what you were yeah. saying about the economy. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, so Ender and Wales basically wrote, women as men have an obligation to vote on who they think is the best candidate, whatever the gender. Mm-hmm. I think that is a sentiment most people think. But what is so important is the way that I would say media and even popular culture shape our ideas about gender and about these issues, right? So sometimes it's not as easy to kind of separate them out. Like something like paid family leave is considered a women's issue, Mm -hmm. but paid family leave, really everyone should care about. If you're a man, you want, you probably have a mother or a wife or a sister and you want to take some time off if they get sick or injured. You know, if you're a young woman, you might not be pregnant now, but you may think one day you might like to and want to have that option. So it's interesting the way that we like silo Mm -hmm. issues that really shouldn't be siloed. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, not to overuse a sentence that gets said all the time, but when women succeed, America succeeds. So it's, you know, definitely a it's a team game here. It's not, you know, women versus men. And uh, I just want to pose a question to both of you, which I think um, I've been thinking about a little bit, is how feminism has helped in the past, you know, decade, 15 years, help women get these leadership roles and um, rise up, whether it's in corporate like corporations or in politics. And so a lot of young women have grown up knowing a woman in a position of power. And so, uh, you know, the novelty of uh, a woman in president maybe isn't as big of a factor as uh, it might have been four years ago, eight years ago even, just these, you know, 18-year-olds who have grown up knowing women CEOs and right, women right. in positions of power. Geo? No, I think I think you're right. Um, I think that's a real generational difference. Um but I also think they 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 might be just as they were colorblind um, in 2008. I think that they're gender blind um, in this election. Um, and but I do think because I mean you're talking about two candidates at least on the Democratic side who are from the same generation. Mm-hmm. 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 Um, and, and it's so funny. So um, one of our um, our activists. Uh, wrote in, because Hillary is an experienced and excellent candidate and so close to what Bernie is for, you should feel obligated. It's time. You know, I do think that there is something significant when you look at the fact that other industrialized nations have elected a woman before, mm-hmm. and that's something the USA hasn't. Um, so in some senses, yes, we shouldn't be voting for people based on just their gender, but there is something unique, the same way it was unique to have an African-American president mm-hmm. for the first time and symbolically what that meant. Um, you know, I would love to like keep this conversation going and I hate the fact that I'm almost being ushered off of this segment but like Layla and Gio in 30 seconds what should our listeners be paying attention to moving forward in 2016? I think it's all about the issues and the more we can have our candidates talking about what resonates with young people, with young women, young families, I think the more we're going to see a really positive response. And Gio, Glamour, what are you guys doing? Young women have the power to change the outcome of this election so Republicans, Democrats, everybody's got to be talking to them and listening to them and you'll see us doing a lot of that in our magazine well i am so thankful that we had you in here in studio i was joined by giovanna gray lockhart washington dc editor for glamour magazine and leila zayden the managing director at generation progress you are listening to the leslie marshall show i'm michelle jawando your guest host and coming up after the break we're going to talk guns with chelsea parsons 
Welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. You are listening to Michelle Jawando. I'm your guest host for the afternoon. And so thank you for joining and staying tuned to um, our riveting discussion. We've had some really great people in studio and calling in. If you want to join in the conversation, and we definitely want to hear from you, give us a call at 866-6LESLIE. That's 866 886-LESLIE. Or if you want to follow us online, you can go ahead and follow at Leslie Marshall, or you can follow at Michelle Jawando. So I have in studio someone who I really love working with. She's a friend, she is a colleague, but she's also doing some amazing and really insightful, and I say needed, um, common sense, smart, um, savvy work in the space of guns and crime. And in studio, I have with us Chelsea Parsons, who's a vice president of guns and crime policy at the Center for American Progress. Chelsea. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So, so you know, guns is an issue that evokes really, really strong emotions from both sides. Um, and I think it's unfortunate because I think sometimes the debate is kind of shrouded in we want to come for each and every one of your guns versus let's have a common sense kind of policy in this country. And I think we get stuck in that kind of crazy space. Yeah. And what's interesting is there's a there are two different conversations happening about gun violence in this country. There's the conversation that is happening inside the Beltway, on the Hill, among policymakers, where you have these really polarizing arguments. Mm-hmm. And then there's a conversation that real people are having in their communities, um, which is much more toned down and reasonable and kind of really just a conversation about how do we keep guns out of the wrong hands? And and I have lots of these kind of backyard conversations with people in my neighborhood who they hear, oh, you work on guns, you work on gun policy, you know, you must be against the Second Amendment or you must be against gun ownership. And then once we just have a regular person conversation, we very quickly get to the point where we realize we're on the same page, we are for the same policies, we are trying to work toward the same goals. So if you are listening in, you can give us a call. Join in the conversation at 888-6LESLIE. That's 888-6LESLIE. And the number is 653-7543 in studio with Chelsea Parsons. So Chelsea, something happened this week in the Fourth Circuit. Uh, So talking a little bit about guns. Um, And it is in the context of the uh, District of Columbia Columbia v. Heller case. Some people are saying that it was a setback for gun Mm -hmm. activists, and some people are saying it's not actually that big of a deal because we're not talking about the merits. Can you tell us kind of what happened this week? Yeah, absolutely. So um, after the horrific mass shooting in Newtown in December of 2012, a number of states um, passed state-level assault weapons bans, so state-level laws um, restricting or outright banning ownership of certain um, highly dangerous assault rifles and high-capacity magazines. Um, Maryland is one of those states, and so upon doing so, the state was challenged um, in court with litigation arguing that this law violated the Second Amendment as it's been interpreted by Heller and the subsequent cases. Um, the That challenge failed at the district court level. So the district court um, found that this assault weapons ban 
was in line with the Second Amendment, was not unconstitutional. Um, and the Fourth Circuit, um, upon hearing that case, didn't decide the case on the merits, but did find that the district court appri- applied the wrong level of scrutiny mm-hmm. to that challenge. And so what the Fourth Circuit did was send the case back down to the district court um, for the court to consider the challenge applying a higher level of scrutiny than what was originally applied. So for our listeners, mm-hmm. we didn't actually look at the merits of the case. Correct. We just looked at how we're going to consider and pay attention to these legal arguments. Exactly. Right? And, and what is interesting is that Assault weapons bans have been challenged um, in other courts, and in four other um, federal court cases, the court has upheld the assault weapons ban, has found that it is um, permissible under the Second Amendment. And so we expect that the Fourth Circuit ultimately will reach the same conclusion. Now, do we expect that we are eventually going to see this type of uh, kind of, I would say, uh, jurisprudence make its way up to the Supreme Court? just because of the topic that we're, uh, when we think about how people feel about assault rifles and weapons? Yeah, I I think that, you know, we expect that at some point in the relative near future, the Supreme Court will decide to take another gun-related case. Um, whether that would be a case relating to an assault weapons ban or whether that will be a case related to um, another issue relating to the scope of the Second Amendment is unclear. I think that um, the other big issue that was left open in Heller that we think will make it to the court and will need to be decided by the Supreme Court at some point is the scope of the Second Amendment right um, outside of the of the boundaries of the home. So what Heller found was that the Second Amendment provides an, insti- an individual's right to possess guns within the home for protection of the home. What the court did not decide was, does that right extend to carrying firearms outside of the home? Um, and if it does apply to carrying guns outside of the home, what are what is the extent of the permissible restrictions on a person's ability to carry firearms? And I think that that is probably one of the issues that the court will need to decide sooner rather than later. So we have a number of people who are engaging online, and one of the questions that we put out is, should states be able to ban assault weapons and high-capacity magazines? And I think right now, we're seeing most of the votes say that, yes, states should be able to do this. And I would agree. But what would you say? Yeah, I mean, I think that the the theory behind an assault weapons ban is that there are certain types of firearms that are inappropriate for civilian use. And so when we talk about assault rifles, um, you know, really what we're talking about are semi-automatic firearms that were designed in the military model and that are designed, frankly, to kill as many targets as possible in the shortest amount of time. And so the argument behind an assault weapons ban is that this is not the kind of firearm that is appropriate for widespread civilian use. It's unnecessary for self-defense. It's unnecessary for sportsmanship and for hunting. And so that's why um, you, you saw states taking these kinds of actions to ban these kinds of weapons. And the fact is, is that a number of the high profile mass shootings that we've experienced as a country with a really high number of uh, victims have 
have been the result of, of assault weapons. What else should we be paying attention to in the states? Like, what else do you see? Because, you know, there's obviously kind of this litigation strategy mm-hmm. that I think there are some kind of conservative activists that are seeking to either strip some of the good things that we see states doing. Um, but then you're also starting to see kind of more offensive work and where we're thinking creatively, particularly and even the domestic violence mm-hmm. context. Um, wh- where do you see kind of emerging trends? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. And, and while there has been, you know, complete stagnation in Congress on this issue, um, at the state level, there's been a lot of progress. And in a lot of states, um, the the issue of domestic violence and of making sure that um, domestic abusers and stalkers don't have easy access to guns, that's one that um, 18 states have, have passed legislation over the last two years um, to strengthen laws with respect to domestic violence. So I think you can expect to see more of that legislation, um, particularly in Connecticut. We're going to see um, a bill this year that would prohibit individuals subject to a temporary domestic violence restraining order from being able to possess guns during the period of that order. Um, so that's something that we'll expect to see in Connecticut this year. Um, I mean, another issue is is background checks. And, and there are going to be on the ballot in a number of states this year, um, including in Nevada and in Maine, um, measures to require background checks for all gun sales. Um, and that's going to go straight to the voters. And that's going to be, um, you know, we saw success on that in Washington state. And so there are still efforts to close the private sale loophole and require background checks for all gun sales happening at the state level. So, Chelsea, I wish I could have you um, talk about this for hours. But <laughs> if people are interested in kind of following your work and staying up to date and kind of the latest and what's happening, where could they go to find out more information? Yeah, absolutely. So you can um, visit the Center for American Progress website, um, which is is AmericanProgress.org. On the left, there's um, a section for guns and crime. You can click there to see all of our resources. You can follow me on Twitter, Chelsea C. Parsons. Um, and, you know, we're, we're really interested in kind of engaging with folks on this issue. Well, Chelsea, we want to engage with you. And we're yes. so thankful that you took the time to come out. For our listeners, if you want to continue the conversation, you can give us a call, 888-6LESLIE, or you can follow at Leslie Marshall Show or at Michelle Jawando and follow us online with your conversation, your comments, your thoughts, and your opinions. We want to hear them all. Um, Coming up after the break, we're going to have a conversation on the 2016 horse race because we can't get enough politics. I mean, everybody loves politics. With Emily Tish-Sussman, the campaign director at Cap Action Fund. Thank you again, Chelsea. Anytime. All right. We'll be back right after the break. Leslie Marshall. Real people. Real life. Real Talk, 888-6-LESLIE. Welcome back. You are listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your guest host for the afternoon, Michelle Jawando. And if you haven't called in, I want to hear from you. Give us a call, 888-6LESLIE. That number is 888-653-7543. You can follow the conversation on Twitter at Leslie Marshall or at Michelle Jawando. 
And back in the studio with us once more, you may remember the last time I hosted, I had to bring in, uh, I would say, one of the most exciting, interesting, and really fun people I get to work with here at the Center for American Progress, Emily Tishessman, who is the campaign director at Cap Action. Emily, welcome back. Thank you, Michelle. So can we officially call this the Sussman segment? <laughs> we Let's can go we, ahead and do it. Can we just title it right let's, there? Let's just do it. I okay, think great. Leslie will be okay with it. Great. I totally I, that's think. what I like to let's hear. Let's just do it. And, you know, if it is the Sussman segment, then that means that we got to talk politics and mm. what's going on in 2016. So we have a Democratic debate tonight. And I think the big topic of conversation is how Hillary is going to perform. What's Bernie going to do? You saw a lot of announcements, endorsements come out today. John Lewis came out and endorsed, as well as the Congressional Black Caucus, endorsed Hillary Clinton. But then you also saw an endorsement from Ben Jealous, the former president of the NAACP for Bernie Sanders. What's the state of the race? Yeah, it is a lot hotter than people thought. I actually just saw that um, Harry Reid said that he thought the Democrats could go into a brokered convention, maybe meaning going into the Democratic convention at the end of, of August without a nominee. That seems a little extreme <laughs> to me. If I'm going to be totally honest here, right, I think right. that Reid is just trying to get a little bit more excitement for the Nevada caucus, which is coming up, because right. he wants strong And you'll turnout. be on the ground there, right? I'll be in Nevada. Okay. All I'll right. be going out to Nevada. I've been going to some... So going around, checking going out around, those swing hidden, voters. Hidden, hidden in the early primary stage. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, voters. the other thing, and how can I forget, we had Marco Bot. I mean, Marco Rubio, <laughs> uh, who had his debate performance that was widely panned because of his answers. But you also had Carly Fiorona and Chris Christie drop out of the race. So what do you think is going on on their side? I mean, I think we're more likely to see a broken convention on the Republican side, because I just don't know how that whole thing is going to work out. Oh, I actually think they're likely, the Republicans are likely to go into a brokered convention. I think this is not the last state that Donald Trump will win, um, although they will probably split a couple more states. Cruz has actually had ground game in South Carolina for some time, and it seems like a good makeup for him. Um, I think that's probably pretty likely. But look, the Republican, like the Republican establishment, the Republican donors, and a lot of Republicans themselves are terrified of having Trump as the nominee. Look, everybody talks about how strong Trump's numbers have been across states, that it's been somewhere around 30% and hasn't broken, which is a pretty, un it actually is unprecedented for one person to stay in the lead for so long. Um, but just as many, basically like two thirds of registered Republicans say they would never support him. <laughs> That's, that, I feel like that's a lot of people that's a lot <laughs> who say of they're people. not actually going to vote for you. So you might have a problem. Yeah, I mean, that is a lot of people. <laughs> like, they are terrible. I mean, also, just not just on, like, the straight horse race, like, who's winning, who's up, who's down, delegate count. But, uh, I mean... For the sake of the country. Like, right. Let's get there's There's that whole thing. Right. You know, let's take away health care, contraception access, abortion rights, affirmative action in schools, that whole thing. We're like that Muslim he's... scaring. Right. Like, he right, goes like right. real to the intense there. Like, it's just bad. Like, he, is, he doesn't know what he's talking about. I mean, you've never seen a nominee, I think, on any variety, like on any level, have so few specifics. Right. Right. What are you going to do? The best. <laughs> it's going to be do it? grand. I mean, it's going to be huge. We're going to just win. Huge. All the time. Exactly. We're going to win all the time. So Carly Fiorona dropped out of the race yesterday, but I thought she had a really interesting point. In her um, Facebook post, she talked about, you know, she firmly stated that she was a feminist and that, like, a 
feminist doesn't mean that you vote one party or think a certain way, um, that like being a leader is a choice. So she said this clarion call to women, like make a choice to be a leader. And I kind of dug the statement. I don't know. Have you heard anything about it or what were your thoughts? Yeah, look, I, I respect anybody. First of all, I respect anybody at all who's willing to put themselves out there to run for public office. I think so it's extremely I. difficult, and you take a lot of personal hits. Yes. I think especially as a woman. As the wife of a candidate currently, <laughs> yes. I I strongly agree with that statement. <laughs> yes, I didn't even mean it that yeah. way. <laughs> but yes, you take a yeah. lot of personal hits. Yeah. And it's really tough, and I think especially as a woman. Mm-hmm. And we do see that women tend to run in that. 50 to 60 year old period of their lives Mm -hmm. because they felt like when they're younger before they have children they're not considered serious and not established enough when they're currently raising children people consider them to be abandoning their children so they don't support them as candidates and it's not until women have children out of the house and restart their careers that um, that they're considered to be socially acceptable to be running for office so you know I accept I, I respect the fact that she did it I respect the fact that she worked her whole life um and had, I mean, she had a very serious career. Mm-hmm. You know what she, you know, she cut a lot of jobs. Right. <laughs> There's that. That but, wasn't right. Great. Right. But you, um, re- but you respect the fact that you know she made it to the top of a pretty male-dominated profession in the tech industry and had some level of success there. Absolutely. Yeah. And the fact that she had a very, I mean, a largely failed run for Senate, but then actually continued to run, those facts I totally respect. Right. Yeah. And I actually think that's been very a very live debate in the last week, mm-hmm. um, especially since um, first Gloria Simon made some comments right. and then right. Madeline, she took those back. Madeline Albright making statements about um, that, you know, women who do not support other women there's a special place and help for right, them. Right. And, I, and I think that her statement has actually been taken very much. It's been isolated. Yeah. It's a great yeah, quote. Yeah. She's been repeating it for 10 years with a yeah. Starbucks cup. Yeah. But actually, the whole <laughs> statement that she made, I think, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. That yeah. younger women, women of our generation, younger mm-hmm. than us, feel like um, their mother's fights are not theirs' fights. Right. They should right. be settled already. You see this in the reproduction context, right? Like this comes up all the time. Right. I mean, I, there is something in... You know, I hate the fact that so much of our debate has to be sound bites. I get it. This is like the world we live in. But I think what the point, you know, the secretary was making is it was so difficult for her to become the first female secretary of state. And she felt a certain loyalty to make sure that other young women, particularly in the foreign policy space that's pretty male dominated, were supporting others. And like, that's the space that she was coming from. But, you know, I I understand how that rubs the wrong way. You know, their fights were so we can get access. And once we got there, we should be able to make up our own minds and do what we want to do once we actually get there. Yeah, absolutely. And I actually think that that story isn't told enough societally about women supporting other women through the workplace. Mm -hmm. We tend toward the story of of women cannibalizing young women in the workplace Mm -hmm. um, for whatever reason. I'm not really sure why. When, in fact, I think there are great examples of women struggling, paving the way, and then bringing up other women behind them. Mm -hmm. Um, But... Look, the way that Albright talks about it is very generational. Mm-hmm. It really resonates mm-hmm. with women of her generation. Mm-hmm. Women who are younger of the next generation feel like it was their mother's fight. Mm-hmm. Um, it shouldn't have to be their fight. They attend colleges that are 60% women. And mm-hmm. so they feel mm-hmm. like it, they almost feel like it's condescending towards them mm-hmm. to say, mm-hmm. like, this should be a factor. Mm-hmm. But the reality is that the struggles are still there. Yeah. There are still very many dom- male-dominated fields. And the yep. reason that we talk about it at all 
the reason that matters at all is that we should put into context how difficult it was and has been for people like Secretary Albright, right. people like Secretary or Clinton. Secretary Clinton. <laughs> exactly. And so it makes me respect them all that much more right. to put their accomplishments into context. And look, I feel the same way about Carly Fiorina. I yeah. think it's very impressive yep. what she did. Yeah. I think her policies were horrible for women. And for that reason, women should not have supported her. Right. <laughs> um, but you can respect the person and the work and kind of their story. You know, I think as we kind of get closer to, I think, the kind of crazy season of the campaign, you know, we're hitting the last two early primary states with South Carolina coming up next week. And then you have Nevada. And then we're going into the SEC primary on March 1st. We're going to start to hear a lot of stories about kind of who the voters are and kind of their stories. What do you think is the thing that we should be paying attention to? What's like the big trend that you don't think people are talking about, but they should be? I think today is the first news cycle where we're actually talking about voters of color in a very serious way. And it's something we need to be looking at. Iowa and New Hampshire, two of the whitest states in the country. So those electorates are not necessarily representative of the American people. I think the two states we're going into, South Carolina has about a third African-American population. Nevada has about, I believe, about a third Hispanic population. Those are going to be much more representative of future states that they're going to have to win, but also just who the country is. And I think it'll have a much better indicator. Joining us for the Sussman segment, uh, Emily Tish Sussman. You can follow her on Twitter at MTSus. This is Michelle Jawando filling in as your guest host on the Leslie Marshall Show. We'll be right back after the break with Scott Swenson talking money in politics. Thanks so much. The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your Good thoughts. Good afternoon and welcome back. You are listening to the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your guest host this afternoon, Michelle Jawando, And it's been an honor to be with you for the last two hours. And as we head into the last, uh, we have a bunch of really great guests and topics left to cover. If you want to join in the conversation, please give us a call, 888-6LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. Or you can follow us at Leslie Marshall. And you can follow me on Twitter at Michelle Jawando. So, you know, we've talked a lot about the 2016 elections. We've talked about who's up, who's down, um, who's running the voters. But what we haven't talked about the deluge of money in this election um, with some estimates that we will be over the two, uh, I think close to the $1 trillion mark all told um, when it comes to looking at, um, I mean, the $2 billion mark when it comes to all of the money that will be spent in this election. And that's on some of the conservative estimates. You know, when we think about our democracy, I don't think our founders thought about dollars and cents. They they might have had a different impression. Um, and so to join me for that conversation, I'm bringing in one of my colleagues who's doing some really great smart work, Scott Swenson, who's the vice president for communications at Common Cause. Scott, thanks for joining me. 
Michelle, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. So, you know, Scott, you and I are often in a lot of conversations with um, really strong um, activists who who have very strong feelings about the role of money in politics and what seems to be kind of the never-ending ways that people can kind of spend money to influence our democracy. And most people aren't really aware. So tell us a little bit about like some of the work that you're doing to kind of bring um, some attention to this issue. Well, uh, thanks so much, Michelle, and it's a pleasure to be with you. The, you know, the, the issue of money and politics is one that is on seemingly everyone's mind this election season. Um, and we at Common Cause, working in our 35 state offices around the country with 400,000 members, uh, have really put a... Uh, face on this issue for folks. It is, you know, money is insidious in our system. It um, it calls pretty much all the shots. It, it tells uh, us what candidates are going to make the break, because there's a certain threshold of money that candidates need in order to uh, be heard in our system right now. Uh, it winnows the field. It, it sometimes, uh, for those who don't have enough money, it sometimes keeps bad candidates at the table talking about bad ideas because maybe they have a big thunder behind them. Uh, it allows certain people to drown out the voices of others uh, so that the average everyday American's concerns aren't being heard uh, in the legislatures and by the president and governors and mayors across the country. So you know, we at Common Cause are here to say uh, we are a citizen's lobby. We're here to put a, a, a face on what everyday Americans are concerned about. And right now, one of the things that they are most concerned about is how their voices are being heard in a system that seems to be all about money. So, you know, there, you know, we often hear about kind of the role of money in politics, but I think some people get stuck on what can I actually do and what can the president do to fix this? Um, and, you know, I know some colleagues here at CAP, at Center for American Progress and Common Cause um, and Public Citizen have really been engaged in this effort to get federal contractors to reveal their political spending and pushing. Um, and I think currently the president is weighing whether or not he can vote his executive authority that would essentially force federal contractors to disclose their political contributions they make to independent groups. Um, and so tell us a little bit about, like, why that would be important to do. Well, it's, it's, it's enormously important, and the president should stop weighing and start doing, uh, frankly. And, and what can people do? Let's just start right there. People can call the White House. People can write the White House. People can write into their letters to the editors, into their media, and let folks know that the president should sign an executive order that would shine light on uh, political contributions by federal contractors. What would that do? Well, two things. One, as a matter of policy, it would impact the 70 top corporations in the country, 70 of the top 100, Fortune 100 companies that do business with the federal government would have to tell us whether or not they have uh, made political contributions that have helped them get the contracts uh, to do business with the federal government, with the people's money, with taxpayer dollars, uh, in order to qualify for those contracts. If they have won in what is known as a pay-to-play system, 
so that they're making a contribution to someone who can help them get a contract, that's not keeping in good faith with what the people's values are. You know, everyone has a right to know who's trying to influence and who's trying to do business with uh, our tax dollars and with our government. We, the people, are the government. And so we want to know if there's dirty dealing going on in se- with secret money uh, in, uh, in, in the contracting pro- process. But secondly, and I think as importantly as the policy implications, what the president would do by signing this executive order and shining a light on this dark money would be to set a, a conversation from, a prob- from the problems of big money in our political system and shift it for the first time since Citizens United to a discussion about what we can do to solve the problem. The president has had the dubious distinction of being uh, in office uh, the entire time that Citizens United has been on the books as a decision by the Supreme Court. Uh, he has said over and over again, including yesterday in Springfield, that he thinks it should be overturned. With the stroke of a pen, he can shift the conversation into the solutions uh, that would help American people understand what they can do at the local and state level. And the good news is, since Citizens United, there have been a lot of things that people have done to elevate these issues. And it's why the president is talking about it. It's why the presidential candidates are talking about it. So if you're just joining us, you are listening to Scott Swenson from Common Cause. I'm Michelle Jawando, your guest host for the afternoon. We had a survey um, where we asked our listeners, should our government require federal contractors to list their campaign gifts or contributions? And 95% of our listeners said, yes, that we should do this. Um, you know, so it seems to me that like on one side, it seems kind of very common common sense, right? You're bidding on a contract, you want to make sure that you're not doing um, kind of giving people different political favors so that you can win the contract. But some people are arguing that this like impinges on their First Amendment rights and that this actually politicizes the process. So what do you say to those folks, Scott? Well, let's talk about what the First Amendment says. The First Amendment is about freedom of speech, all right? So that means that you and me, regardless of what to how much money we sit on in our wallets or have in our purses. We have a right to speak our minds in our democracy, and we should be held accountable for what we have to say and, and the ideas that we put forth. So, you know, free speech is the right of every American, regardless of the size of their wallet. Uh, as far as infringing on that, that right, that's just ridiculous. And as far as politicizing, <laughs> as far as politicizing the effort, it's even more ridiculous because the way that the EO is structured is that the um, the, uh, the the light that the information about the donations will not come until after a contract has been awarded. So it's a competitive bidding process. Everybody is in there fairly. We assume uh, once the contract is awarded, uh, then uh, the the winning uh, company would have to reveal their political donations. So really what the executive order does is it really acts as a disinfected, uh, because I think a company that is doing business with the government that might currently be participating in some sort of pay-to-play scheme would not want that to come out in a post-award situation uh, were the president to sign the EO. Um, And so therefore, you know, it's not playing politics. It's just shining a light on what a company has done. Right. Uh, if they're if they're and, if they're a bad actor, then they're going to then we know and out. and we'll find out about it. So let me just ask you a question, Scott. You know, as as we get deeper and deeper into this election, and some of the numbers have been really outstanding 
uh, outstanding um, or astonishing rather and just the the amount of money that has been spent um, and while we've seen a lot of money from the candidates we've seen it seems almost even more money from super PACs and while we're still trying to find and trace some of the numbers we're seeing a lot more from these kind of secret unaccountable uh, organizations that no one really knows where that money comes from what does that do to kind of our political rhetoric you know my sense is it's only gotten kind of worse and coarse um you know i talk about being the kind of wife of a of a candidate um but i'm also a voting rights attorney and just seeing kind of what this does to people and some of the cynicism so i have some real concerns but wanted to know your thoughts on that well Michelle, you're absolutely right, the, and, 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 and it is depressing. And, and to the listeners, there's something that we should all just take to heart, which is every time big money has been a problem, whether it's robber barons of old or other parts of our history, the people have overcome and have won. So we need to start with the notion that we the people are where the power in this government is truly vested. And while it may have slipped out of our hands momentarily with this big money system, we will get it back. So, yes, you're absolutely right. It is having a depressing impact. And there is sort of a one-two punch. You mentioned your work with voting rights, which is stellar. You know, we have sort of a one-two punch right now where we have big money um, really influencing and coarsening the debate, as you said. We also have people who are actively trying to suppress the vote for certain constituencies and actually putting obstacles into place. So we have the barriers of money um, that are preventing people from participating in the system. And then we have the obstacles that people are putting in the way of people voting. Uh, and that one-two punch is making people think that our democ- something is wrong in our democracy, and they're right. So, uh, Scott, is slipping we, we are going to go to break, but I'm actually going to bring you back. And I know I didn't necessarily tell you, but this conversation is too good. I don't want to end it yet. Joining me for our listeners, uh, Scott Swenson from the uh, Common Cause, who will join us a little bit more in the next segment to talk a little bit further about money and politics and what we can do to take back our democracy. This is Michelle Jawando on The Leslie Marshall Show. We'll be back in a bit. Leslie Marshall, The Simple Truth in a Complicated World, 888-6-LESLIE. Welcome back. You are listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your guest host this afternoon, Michelle Jawando. If you want to join in the conversation, you can follow us on Twitter at Leslie Marshall or at Michelle Jawando. If you want to give us a call, love to hear from our callers. You can call 888-6LESLIE, which is 888-653-7543. So joining me again for our second segment is Scott Swenson. Scott is the vice president of communications at 
Common Cause and has been doing a lot of great work on money and politics and campaign finance. And so, Scott, yesterday the president gave a really stirring speech, you know, it was a really emotional speech, I think, for him in some ways to return back to Illinois and return back to the state um, Senate where he began his political career and talked about, you know, a better politics and, you know, said a statement that really resonated with me. Um, He said, if 99% of us participated, then it doesn't matter what the 1% would do. And that really struck me, because if you think about the fact that we know less than even 1% um, are are kind of influencing our democracy with kind of campaign contributions, but then we don't see the same kind of turnout and engagement on the other side. But if we did, our politics would look a lot different. So w- what did you really think about that speech? I thought it was powerful. Well, the speech as a whole is powerful, and there is really no better speaker or, or, or person to speak about the problems of facing our democracy than this president. His last, stated, last section of the State of the Union address, his speech yesterday, the first of what he's calling a series of better politics speeches, are certainly welcome in that they will raise the uh, profile of these issues for voters. And he's right. If everybody votes, money really... Uh, only matters to a certain extent. It only matters to the certain extent that it still is a threshold for people to be heard. It only matters in that it would still uh, limit uh, limit the numbers of people and really the types of people that are running for office. It really only matters in the fact that it would still mean that certain people's messages would get through louder and clearer than others' messages. So uh, while he is right that voting would make a huge difference, and we should, we have to also recognize that it is the money in the system that is depressing the vote and is keeping people from feeling like their voices are being heard. And so uh, we want to encourage folks to vote, absolutely, but we also want to put in place a system that is fair and equitable and make sure that democracy remains of, by, and for the people and not just of, by, and for those who can afford it. (laughs) So, you know, I've seen lately that there actually is some engagement even from our libertarian and Republican friends. Like, they're feeling a little bit of sense of frustration. Are you starting to see kind of the whole money and politics message connect with people across the board? Well, the, the... The fact of the matter is, is that it's a myth that money and politics has ever been a partisan issue outside of Mitch McConnell's office. Uh, Mitch McConnell is the only person in Washington or the country, I think, that thinks this is a partisan issue. He happens to have a stranglehold on the Republican caucus, so that makes it a little bit That's a little. Partisan. It makes it a little difficult. <laughs> it makes it a little difficult. But here's the truth. Uh, you know, the truth is that conservatives understand crony capitalism. They understand a rigged system when big business gets advantages that small businesses don't. Uh, you know, conservatives understand how uh, voices can be uh, eliminated or, or, or drowned out of a system that is supposed to be about each and every one of us. You know, at its heart, both uh, uh, liberalism and conservatism is about the individual. It's about our rights to pursue our dreams and our beliefs. And that individual voice that is at the center of the, is at the heart of liberalism and is at the heart of conservatism is what brings together people saying, I could vote for Trump or I could vote for Sanders. Those two candidates are tapping into something that is out there in the body politic, and it's not liberal or conservative. It's American. It's about our democracy, and it's about 
each and every voice being heard. There's some, you know, the the freedom that Donald Trump has to just say whatever he wants to say, even if it is so crazy, is interesting. Like, he feels like he can do that because he just has boatloads of money to use to get out his message. So is it like, it's an interesting exercise in democracy, like what our debates might look like if you didn't worry about money, if you just actually said, hopefully with a little more substance than Donald Trump, but if our democracy was in such a place where you didn't have to worry about money and you can really have an honest exchange of ideas, um, it, it, we might get better turnout and engagement because people might think it's more interesting. Absolutely. I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head, Michelle, in that he has no one to answer to. He is a self-funded candidate. He is not uh, a solution in, 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 to the money and politics problems in, in the sense that you, don't, you should not have to be a billionaire to have exactly. that freedom. <laughs> uh, and, in fact, he's sort of the poster child for the problem because in the debates where he raises this issue, as he, as he has, and we applaud him for doing it, he has said, you know, yeah, I give money, and when I ask for favors, they come back and they answer <laughs> my calls. Exactly. And that's the problem. That's that the problem. Have. That's the problem. Scott, you've been great. we got to have you back another time. This is Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show. We'll be back in one minute with Rebecca Vallis talking about poverty in the context of the latest presidential uh, election. Good afternoon and welcome back. You are listening to the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your guest host this afternoon, Michelle Jawando, and I have been so excited to join with you this afternoon. We've really been talking about some really great topics, had some super interesting guests, and we still have some things left to talk about. We're not done yet. Um, If you want to join in the conversation, and I'd love to hear from you, give us a call. Our number, 888-6LESLIE, 888-653-7543, or you can follow us at at Leslie Marshall or at Michelle Jawando. Joining me in studio for our next segment is Rebecca Vallis, who is the Managing Director of the Poverty to Prosperity Program. Rebecca, and also the host of Talk Poverty Radio. Thank you for the shout-out, Michelle. Yeah. Appreciate it. <laughs> we love uh, Talk Poverty Radio. Well, well, Talk Poverty Radio loves you, Michelle. Thank you. Well, we are so excited that you are here because I want to talk about something that I feel like is getting no attention And not in the way that it really should be. You know, the president's budget is going to come out. um, Well, the president's budget just came out. And so we're looking and kind of going through that now. We know that Congress is going to kind of put together their own package and what they think we should do. We're having these presidential primaries in states where poverty is something that's particularly acute, but we don't hear about it. And we haven't really heard it come up on either the Democratic or the Republican side. And we have another debate tonight. So, Rebecca, just kind of set the stage. Like, why don't we talk about it? And, you know, you're starting to hear a little bit more from Speaker Ryan, but there's some questions about what they really want to do. But kind of set the context. Where are we as a country? And why is this so difficult for us to talk about? 
Well, I'm, I'm so glad that you're talking about it, Michelle, because, I mean, one of the reasons that we actually have a radio show called Talk Poverty Radio is because the P word is, and I, we, we often call it the P word, right? No one wants to say poverty. It's something that very rarely do people ever really feel comfortable talking about. And, and that's especially the case for elected officials, for people running for office. Poverty is not something that, that, they, that they give a lot of ink to or airtime to. Um, we hear a lot more about about the middle class, that's sort of a, a more comfortable place for people to be. But I, I would actually push back on part of what you said, right? Mm-hmm. I actually think we've been hearing a lot about poverty in this particular presidential cycle. And I think we've been hearing about it a lot on both sides of the aisle. Do I think that that means we, we are where we need to be? No, but let me explain why I took that slightly different position than, than people might have expected me to take in, in responding. On the left, we've actually heard a lot about about raising the minimum wage, about uh, social security. We've heard a lot about paid leave, paid sick days, closing the gender wage gap. Bernie Sanders has been talking t- almost in every sentence he he utters about inequality, about child poverty. So mm-hmm. actually, I think we've heard a lot on the left, maybe not using the P word all mm-hmm. the time, but mm-hmm. about the problems and about the solutions. On the right, we've actually heard both from the candidates, a mm-hmm. number of the candidates, especially perhaps Marco Rubio more than anyone, right. about um, about poverty, about his hard scrabble past, about knowing you know what it's like to, to be a struggling working person. Um, a- and we've also been hearing from thought leaders on the right, like Paul Ryan, more than ever. Yeah, he that ho- is true. He hosted a big poverty summit in South Carolina, one of the states that we're about true. to see some returns from. Yeah. Um, and he actually hosted almost all of the presidential candidates, and they talked exclusively about poverty for like eight hours that day. Mm -hmm. But here's why I think we're not where we should be. It's great on the left to be hearing a lot of the solutions we need to hear. It's great on the right that they're at least using the P word and talking about poverty. But unfortunately, I think... The media, most in the media, are not holding either side really accountable, and particularly folks on the right, because they're just satisfied to hear the word said. And not the solutions. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Or they don't they don't actually compare the rhetoric to the reality. To the reality. Right? So let me bring in, because we have a caller on the line, Michael from the Bronx. Michael? Hello, ladies. Can you hear me? Hi, Michael. We hear you. Oh, good, good. Um, I think it's um, more to be said in regards to poverty, and it kind of ties in not just with what goes on in the criminal justice system, but the um, disenfranchisement of um, poor voters, especially those of color, um, minorities, and even women for that matter. I mean, who could ever forget at the last presidential election, the 2012 in Florida, where this elderly African-American woman was forced to stand in line for nine hours to cast her vote because Republican sinister governor Rick Scott purposely closed down um, two available um, voting Voting sites. He he decreased the amount of um, voting booths so people cannot stand as long and then they get off the line for uh, health reasons. The Republicans have always come up with some kind of shenanigans to um, violate um, the opposition's uh, right to vote. And 
That's pretty much what's been going on. Yeah, Michael, I mean, you 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 hit the nail on the head of how these issues disproportionately affect certain communities. You know, whether it's the story of that woman in Florida. And thank you so much for the call, Michael. We, we also have been watching, um, we have a number of people, Rebecca, who are engaging online with our survey where we said, should these candidates be talking more about the 48 million Americans in poverty? And 100% of our listeners to say, today said yes so like something you're right there is like this urgency like that we want to hear more but maybe we're hearing something but not all the way like what's 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 the disconnect there so i would totally agree we need to hear more but what i want to plant as far as a seed in people's brains is that talking about it is not enough Mm -hmm. that just saying the word just saying i care is not enough right what we need to be actually holding our kids candidates and our elected officials accountable to is what are you going to do about it? Mm -hmm. And so, for example, Paul Ryan, Speaker of the House, um, has been talking extensively about poverty. I mentioned that poverty summit that he convened and all the candidates were there, you know, most of them talking about how much they care. And there was, you know, gone were the days of the 47 percent and of of Mitt Romney saying, oh, no, we can just... softer, kinder, gentler GOP, right? The talking points were a lot better. But unfortunately, when you look at the policies, that they're actually pushing, it it might be a different shade of lipstick, but it's the same old pig, right? (laughs) It's about we want to slash programs that work and that help families like nutrition assistance, like housing assistance, like Medicaid. Look at at South Carolina, one of the states that we're about to be watching in this presidential race. Nikki Haley, the governor there, still refuses to expand Medicaid, a huge problem for South Carolina. And tell our listeners why that's so significant and who does Medicaid help? Well, I mean, here we've got basically as a requirement on the Republican side of the aisle to run for president that you have to be pledging to repeal the Affordable Care Act, right? Right. They're all in unison on that. Instead of saying, wait a second, let's actually implement it fully so that low-income Americans who are working harder than ever and falling further and further behind can actually have access to health insurance. I mean, we're, we're one of the richest nations in the world, and yet we still don't have full implementation of this law that's about making sure that people have access to basic health insurance. South Carolina is one of those states, it's uh, I think 16 states at last count, that are still refusing, even though it's a great deal financially for the states, even though governors would actually be saving their states money, they're refusing to do it on ideological grounds because when you look at their policies, they're not looking out for struggling Americans. But I I would also just say one other thing, Michelle, which is there's another reason why why the candidates should be talking about this and why the American public should want to be hearing more about this. It isn't about 47 million Americans living below a federal poverty line. It's about the fact that actually poverty is not about us and them. It's not about the people on the wrong side of the tracks. It's about a a common shared lived experience that most of us will have at some point in our lives. We Mm -hmm. will lose a job. Mm -hmm. We will get sick. We will be caring for a loved one. We'll have a child and not have paid leave. It's an experience that four out of five Americans will experience for at least one year 
out of their working years is significant economic hardship. So it's not about them. It's, it's about, about us. us. And it's that's why us. we should be talking about it. I love that. Oh, I cannot believe we're almost done. <laughs> Rebecca, Time you flies are with you, amazing. Michelle. I know. There's so much more to talk about. Uh, Rebecca Vallis, the Managing Director of the Poverty to Prosperity Program here at the Center for American Progress and co-host of Talk Poverty Radio. We will definitely have you back. You're listening to the Leslie Marshall Show. Thank you so much for everybody writing in, calling in. We will be back in a minute. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. Leslie Marshall Show. You are listening to Michelle Jawando. I'm filling in for Leslie as the guest host this afternoon. And you have been an amazing um, audience. Uh, we've had really great callers and those engaging with us on Twitter. So we just want to say thank you from all of the team here. Um, if you want to join in the convo, we're not done yet. You can give us a call at 888-6-LESLIE, which is 888 888- Six five three seven five four three, or you can follow us on Twitter at Leslie Marshall um, or at Michelle Jawando. So you know we're coming to the um, end of the hour now, and um, you know we've been talking about a lot, everything from voting rights to education, um, a little bit about the environment. And as we get ready to close, I have one last guest, Alejandro Davila, who's the climate reporter for Think progress alejandro hello hi thank you so much for joining us in studio so we started the day talking about the environment and we were we're closing the day um talking about that and you know i i try to end on a on a big note um one of the things that i wanted to flag even as we're starting this kind of conversation is there is a sense that like Solar is a way that we can bring in communities of color in the kind of um, environmental justice kind of green job space. And we're seeing that kind of take place across the country. Would you say that's about right? Sure. And uh, in fact, I mean, there's been a lot of discussions in terms of community solar, this idea of having solar projects in the middle of neighborhoods sometimes and so that everybody can have an access to them, which is sometimes a problem as far as, you know, getting that uh, solar panels in people's homes is just expensive, uh, oftentimes, right? It requires a big down payment. So, yes, it, it is for sure an, an option. Uh, community solar would be the, the, the first thing that comes to my mind. So, you know, as we just kind of are looking at kind of all of our different options, would you say that you're starting to see policy start to support that? You know, we still are dealing with, like, members of Congress who bring, like, snowballs into, like, the Senate floor and say climate change is not real because it's snowed. So, like, don't we also need to, like, match our policy with kind of the innovation that we're seeing in the private sector? Sure thing. And uh, and in that sense, I would say that, yes, I mean, it's been happening. It's been happening mostly in, by the states, and California is a good example. California has been leading for, for years. I come from a county that uh, actually was received a boom in 
let's say five years ago. And um, but uh, even though it's true that what you're saying is true, there are some members of, of Congress who say, well, they have this questionable ideas as far as climate change. And uh, but. The energy bill right now, it's, it's a good example of, of perhaps a, a change in, in mentality. Perhaps it's not as implied, as strong as you would think, but uh, this energy bill, for instance, talks about uh, infrastructure a lot, and that is connected with uh, with solar and wind, specifically with, with renewables in general, which is a problem. We, our infrastructure is so old that sometimes having that that uh, that efficiency into how what goes where smart grids right. and so forth makes a huge difference yes. so i know you are a writer also at think progress um and you know you're watching the 2016 elections like everybody in the world um you know are there certain candidates that you think maybe are paying more attention to this than others i tend to believe maybe those democrats maybe but that's just my two cents <laughs> Um, yes, for sure. Of course, the Democrat side is always has been on the forefront on this. It's uh, dealing with the Republican base is much more difficult if you want to put these ideas. But there is there have been new new uh, polls that talk about even the Republican base is considering climate change as as as, a, as an important thing to look on, and they are concerned about it as well. Um, so we have a problem into the extremes, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. right now they're. It's, I think it's worth to say that the, the presidential candidates right now it's dealing with the extreme, and as things move forward, they're going to probably uh, start catering to the middle a little more. Right. So you know we we we've been talking a lot about just the 2016 elections today, um, and we talked a little bit about kind of. Bernie and um, Secretary Clinton are having a debate tonight, even this evening. Um, today, there's been a lot of action online with some of the endorsements. So um, the civil rights icon, John Lewis, endorsed Secretary Clinton today and talked about how he didn't actually know um, and never <laughs> met Bernie Sanders. It's, I think, the number one trending topic on Twitter. Um, and then you see um, Bernie Sanders roll out kind of endorsements from like Harry Belafonte and um, Ben Jealous, former head of the NAACP. So you're so tonight, I think, is going to be a kind of action-packed debate. What are you What are you listening for? I mean, we're going to probably hear about these things tonight. Um, and I know just the kind of horse race watcher in me wants to kind of see what's happening. But what are you paying attention to? What are you listening for this evening? I'm always paying attention to what they say on climate change, of course. And uh, offshore drilling is it's interesting to see. I mean, there's it's very difficult to differentiate between them two in terms of climate change, whereas perhaps with foreign policy in other mm-hmm. areas is it's a bit easier. Mm-hmm. Um, so if if I was if if I was the general audience looking into that, is is I would pay attention into those small details that, that are very difficult to distinguish. I couldn't even I couldn't even give you an example a, a <laughs> precise idea of, um, but uh, surely they are and and and. And as as the debate goes happens happens tonight, uh, I think it's going to be evident. Um, I mean, there's been some changes into Hillary Clinton has talked about uh, some changes into what she was looking into offshore drilling, for instance. Mm-hmm. So I mean, see that there there are some important things, and if you're concerned about um, or interested about climate changes and climate policy, as 
I am. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> and I, well, I think, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to bring you in and, you know, for our listeners who are joining us, this is Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show. If you want to join in the conversation, give us a call at 888-6-LESLIE. I'm speaking with Alejandro Davilla, who is the climate reporter at Think Progress. We talked a lot about Flint. Uh, we talked about the stay of the president's clean power plan. I And I talked about me personally. I think before I actually even came to CAP, I wasn't quite aware acutely of how great of an impact um, our policy decisions on our environment, um, how they affect our day-to-day lives. And in some ways, Flint, I think, opens up a whole new communities to the in, the adverse impact of kind of nonsensical um, environmental policy. And when we don't pay attention to our water quality and if we don't invest in infrastructure um, and what actually happens to whole communities and children. How do we get more people to kind of see those connections? I think Flint in some ways is a horrible example, but it's resonating with so many people feeling like, listen, our government should be doing much better on these issues, and we're not. Well, that is a very good question, and the answer answer is just so broad. I mean, I could say that First, it's very difficult to make that connection, and it's true what you're talking about, Flint. Surely when we talk about what caused it and we're talking about the pipelines and we're talking about how pollution in the water is what's affecting the pipelines that ended up polluting people's blood, or I should say, you know, coming into people's blood. I mean, this is this is terrible, surely. Um, and, and sometimes it's difficult to make that connection, but it's there. Uh, I mean, I... I can't be I can't stress it enough as, as someone who, who covers this day in and day out I mean the connection is clear and and, and how environment influences people's health um, it's it's very important I mean this coming Saturday there's uh, there's going to be a, a, an annual meeting the annual meeting of, of, of scientists happening I, I, I forgot the name the actual name of it and there's they're going to talk about interesting figures about air pollution and how it relates to um, to deaths that's worldwide so I mean we have research coming up talking about the connection constantly uh, now whether people are going to start paying attention more often I think it comes with the urgency and the flint cases that we're seeing more and more often I should know that we have more flint cases they're just not known right now that's right Alejandro, we so appreciate you coming in. Um, You are talking about these issues and trying to get people to wake up and pay attention, and we appreciate it. Not everybody is yet, but hopefully with more and more of our listeners at the Leslie Marshall Show, they can help to do that. Um, This is Michelle Jawando. It's been an honor and a privilege to be with you for the last three hours. This is our democracy, people. we got to make it count. Get aware, stay involved, stay connected. You're listening to the Leslie Marshall Show. Thanks again.